Good morning. Glad that you're here today. I got to ask you a real important question. Been wanting to ask this for a few days now. How many of you still don't have all your clocks reset? All right, this is my kind of people right there. Those folks had their hand up. My tribe is right there. I've got most of my clocks reset. There's, I think there's one in the living room that's still not set. I'm not sure about the microwave. There's one in my office that's still not set. Um, huh? In the car? Nope. Lisa's car is still not set. That's right. Uh, so we're working on that. So last Sunday, that's what we started talking about was not just clocks, but the whole concept of reset. You know, in electronics, a lot of electronics at least, there is a reset button. And what that does, you need to be careful with that because it, it restores the manufacturer's original settings. So if you had other settings in place and you push reset, it's going to wipe those out usually because it's going to restore the manufacturer's original settings. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about uh, in this series is that we need to perhaps reset our church, or to put it this way, maybe we need to rethink how we think about church. That's really what I want you to do. I want you to rethink how you think about church. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word church, but it's probably a far cry from what the people in the first church thought of when they used the word. You see, at the first church, church wasn't about a building because there wasn't one. In the first church, it wasn't about church people, because there weren't any. So for the first Christians, church wasn't a place that you attended. It wasn't an event that you sat through. Rather, it was a movement you were a part of. This movement was built around a conviction. And the conviction was, Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And He and He alone can offer forgiveness of sins and can change our eternal destinies if we'll put our faith in Him. The early church had that conviction. And that's what started the movement that we call church. And ladies and gentlemen, we are part of that movement because Jesus has given us the same mission and the same message that they had. And if we really took that assignment seriously, I think we would, well, I think we would rethink the way we think about church. We'd probably do what the first church did when they fully realized the extent of what was being placed on their shoulders, when they fully realized the message and the mission they had been given, when, when all of that really sank in, I want to show you what they did. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, I just want to tell you a story today, basically. I don't have a fancy outline for you, I want to tell you a story. Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> I'm going to start at verse 1, just to get the context, verse 1 and 2. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, now, now Luke, the writer who wrote the gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And he's writing the book of Acts to an individual named Theophilus. And he says, in my former book, that is in the gospel, what we would call the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, as I read those verses, something jumped out at me. It's a word choice that I found very, very interesting. 
Look at verse 1 again. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus... If you and I were writing it, we would write it this way. All that Jesus did and taught. That's not what he says. He says, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. You see, what Jesus began to do in his earthly body, he planned to continue to do through his spiritual body, the church. Now that goes back to what we looked at last week. The church didn't start out as a place. The church didn't start out as a building. It was a movement. And the movement was this, watch. The movement was to continue what Jesus began to do. That's really what the book of Acts is all about. You have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talking about all that Jesus did or what He began to do. And then the book of Acts is what He continued to do through the church. That's really what the book of Acts is all about. Now, we go down to verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but what, church? But wait. Wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I've wondered as I've read this, what that must have, what must have gone through their mind when he said, in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this when you're going to do all of this? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. Now in verse 8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. There are two themes that run throughout verses 4 and 8, but these same two themes run throughout the entire book of Acts. And the two themes are these. First of all, the power of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, the witness of the church. And I find it very interesting that Jesus is the one who called His disciples. Jesus taught His disciples. Jesus commissioned His disciples. But they were not ready to go out until they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Very interesting that they needed that power. Even though they had had the teaching of Jesus, they needed the the anointing, the enabling, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and when that comes, verse 8, when that comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, watch this, you will be my witnesses. I want you to let that sink into your mind for a moment. You will be My witnesses. Now, where are they going to, according to verse 8, where are they going to be the witnesses? You talk back to me today, would you? Where are they going to be witnesses for Jesus? Vance Pittman put it this way. I like the way he describes it. He said, first of all, here's what he said to him. He says, all right, I I want you to be, you're going to be my witnesses. Let let that sink in for a moment. Let, Let the weight of that what I began to do, you'll continue to do. 
You'll be my witnesses. And he says, here's where you're going to do it. Everybody lean in. Here's where you're going to do it. First of all, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem where they hate you. You see, it was just 40 days ago they crucified Jesus. They didn't like Jesus or anyone connected to him. So you didn't have to take an opinion poll to find out if they loved Christians or followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. They hated Jerusalem, or they hated, uh, the Jews hated Christians. And so here's what was happening. Jesus said, now you're going to be my witnesses, and here's, where, here's how we're going to do this. First of all, I want you to start in Jerusalem where they hate you. Then, secondly, I want you to go to Judea and Samaria where you hate them. Because they didn't like the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Even the followers of Jesus probably hated the Samaritans. He says, so, so here's what we're going to do. Start in Jerusalem where they hate you. And then go to Judea and Samaria where you don't like them. And then go to the ends of the earth. Go to the ends of the earth where you don't even know where you're going to be going. You've never been there before. You don't know how you're going to get there. But that's what I want you to do. So you're going to start in Jerusalem where they hate you. You're going to go to Judea, Samaria where you hate them. Then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And then watch what happens. He left. I'm not making this up. Look at the text. So in verse 8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he left. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. Here's what happened. After he said this, after he gave them that instruction, all of a sudden, he starts going, floating up, up, and they're standing there going, Did you? What? What? Where? Anybody see him? And then they're just stuck. They don't know what to do except this. Finally, when Jesus gets to heaven, this is not in the text, it's imagination. But when Jesus got to heaven, I think he said, Would you send two angels down there and tell them to stop staring up here and get on with it? And it's right there in the text. Look what it says in verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as, as he was going, and when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. And here's what they said. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? See, they've been standing there doing this the whole time. And that's all they're doing. Because they don't know what else to do. They did not anticipate this happening. They had not read the book of Acts. They had not heard of anything like this. And so the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. You know why they were standing there staring at the sky? I think it was because I think it was because they, they had just been told these words. Listen, you'll be my witnesses. And you're going to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem where they hate you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria where you hate them. 
And you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, to places you've never gone to. And as they were trying to process that, they watched him float up into the sky. And all of a sudden, they're by themselves. They didn't see that one coming. They didn't see that one coming. I I remember back when I was in college and and I was learning to fly a plane. I remember one day, so vividly, I, I was with my instructor, his name was Joe, and we were doing touch and goes. I know we've got a few pilots here, but touch and goes are basically where, <clears throat> where you come in and you land the plane, turn off the carburetor heat, give it full throttle, and you take off again. So, so you, you touch down and you go. That's why they're called touch and goes. And so as you're learning to fly, you do a lot of touch and goes because landing and takeoff is pretty critical, you know? And so... <clears throat> I'd been doing touch and goes for a long time, and Joe, the instructor, never once said to me, hey, we're getting close. You're going to solo here for too long. He never said that. He never said, you're doing good, and, and I, I anticipate that, that you're going to be doing this on your own. He never said that. I was just doing touch and goes. I said, touch down, take off, go around flying at 3,000 feet, fly around the airport, fly around the city, come back, touch down, take off. I was just doing touch and goes. And one day as I, as I came in landed, and I landed, I was getting ready to cut the carburetor heat off, give it full throttle, and he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. He said, I want you to pull over here to the side. And I thought, man, I, I really messed up. He's never done this before. I don't know what I did wrong, but... So I, I take the plane over to the side, over near the hangar, and... He opens the door and gets out. He says, okay, you're on your own. Be careful. What what do you mean I'm on my own? He said, oh, I think you're ready. I want you to go back out there and fly some more touch and goes. He shut the door. I turned the plane. I headed back out to the runway. I got the, the plane centered on the runway and I sat there for a moment. I don't know if the plane was shaking or if that was just me. But I sat there for a moment. Gave it full throttle. I go down the center of the runway. I get to, I'm watching my speed indicator and I get to a certain speed. And I pull back on the yoke. I take off. I remember it like it was five minutes ago. I take off and I look over and that seat was empty. The seat had never been empty before. And I prayed out loud. I said, it's just you and me, Lord. I think the disciples must have felt that. I think they must have sensed this this idea of, can I really do this? Am I ready for this? Those are the kind of thoughts that went through my mind when I was taking off doing my solo. Can I do this? Am I ready for this? And I think they were doing that. They were having that same crisis of faith, if you will. Can I really do this? Can we really do this? Can we accomplish this? The reason I say that is because look what happened after he left. Verse 12. Then, after they watched him go up in the sky, after they recognized what was happening. Verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. The Mount of Olives is just basically across the street and across the valley from Jerusalem. It's not very far at all. 
And so they're over on the hillside. On the other side there, from, not far from, from Jerusalem. They're, and they come down the Mount of Olives, back into the city. And verse 13, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Not Judas Iscariot, not Judas the betrayer. He's already gone now. He's left the scene. Now we have 11 apostles, and here's what, they're, what they decide to do. Verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and, the, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. <clears throat> What would you do? What would you do if you were on the Mount of Olives? You see, you hear Jesus say, you'll be my witnesses. You're going to start Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And you feel the weight of all of that. And then you see him leave in a way you've never seen before. What, what do you do after that? I mean, literally, what do, you, do you go home and watch CNN? Do you go home and turn on ESPN? I mean, what do you do after that? you probably would have done what, what they did. Look at this word. It's an interesting word. They all, verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Now, there's a little Greek word for all there. It means every single one of them. Not some, not most, but all. Every single one of them. They, they believed the words of Jesus. You'll be my witnesses. Every single one of them anticipated the coming of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of them were overwhelmed by the mission they were being given. And so they all joined together constantly in prayer. Hey, by the way, do you, do you know when we pray the most? We pray the most when we're the most desperate. We all do that. You see, tomorrow morning, if you go in tomorrow morning and all of a sudden they hand you a pink slip and said, I'm sorry, but your services are no longer needed here. You know what you're going to become tomorrow morning? You're going to become a prayer warrior. Right? You're going to be praying like you've never prayed before. You're going to be calling people and asking them to pray for you. You're going to be uh, calling your, your BSF class members and asking them. You're going to be emailing people. I need a job. Pray for me. You're going to become a prayer warrior. Because we pray the hardest when we're the most desperate. That's the way the first church was praying. What led them to join together constantly? All of them joined together constantly in prayer. I think there was three things. Number one, they prayed because of the task they had been given. You see, this was going to be the greatest challenge of their life. Listen to this. No longer were they mere followers of Jesus. Now they were going to be His representatives. The sheer magnitude of the task drove them to constantly pray together for what God was asking them to do. I think they also prayed together because they felt inadequate. You know, scholars believe that this prayer meeting lasted 10 days. That they prayed 10 days before the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The sheer magnitude led them because they felt so inadequate. They, they felt the need to pray because they felt powerless. They felt the need to pray because they felt inadequate. I mean, after all, these were common people. These were a tax collector, fishermen. These were common people. And yet they've been given an extraordinary task. Could I ask you a question? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt inadequate? 
Have you ever felt like God's given you something to do and you felt like you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not talented enough? That's not a sign you need to quit. That's a sign you need to pray. Prayed because that's... Number three, they prayed because that's probably what they'd seen Jesus do so many times. Listen to this. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 4? In chapter 1, verse 4, He said you need to wait in Jerusalem. He didn't say you need to pray. He just said you need to wait. So why is it that they felt this compulsion to pray? Not just one day, but for ten days. What led them to do that? Well, overwhelmed by the task, feeling inadequate, but maybe they prayed also because they had learned that from Jesus as they watched Him. See, before He chose the twelve, they were part of the multitude and they saw Him go up on the mountainside to pray all night. At the Sermon on the Mount, They said, Lord, teach us to pray, and he taught them how to pray. When he saw the crowds following him in Galilee, he turned to the disciples and said, you need to pray that God will send more workers into the harvest field. When he fed the 5,000, after he got done, they watched him go up into the mountain, onto the mountain and pray. And before he faced the greatest challenge of his life, the cross, they were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed. So when the, when the apostles faced the greatest challenge they'd ever faced, it was just natural. It was just natural to get by themselves and to pray. I'm going to talk to you real quickly about two mistakes that I think we make in prayer. Then I'm going to bring it to a point of application. One of the mistakes I think we make in prayer is that we underestimate the power of prayer, don't we? Listen, I'm going to tell you what prayer is not. Prayer is not a monotonous routine or ritual or chore. Can I tell you what prayer really is? If you'll think about it, can I tell you what prayer really is? Prayer is your invitation to meet with Almighty God. Prayer is the place where burdens are exchanged. Prayer is is a way that a finite person taps into the infinite power of God. And finally, prayer is the one weapon the enemy has no match for. Someone rightly said, prayer will loosen many a knot that my own hands cannot untie. Not only do we underestimate the power of prayer, but listen to this church, listen to this church, we underestimate the power of praying together. We underestimate the power of praying together. You see, for the average American Christian, I'm going to talk about this next week, Lord willing, but for the average American Christian, praying together is a very uncomfortable experience. For the average American Christian, the the concept of gathering together and praying together, I can prove that to you. Let me just announce a prayer meeting to see how many come. You see, praying together, experiencing life together, is just not something we're comfortable with. But let's just walk through Scripture. Just read Scripture with me. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. We've read it. Let's read it again. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Acts chapter 1, verse 24. They're trying to choose a replacement for Judas. It says, verse 23, so they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. And when they prayed, they're all together, they're praying together, Lord, 
You know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two men you have chosen. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves, notice this phrase, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to what, church? And to pray, and to prayer. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. This, Lord willing, is what we're going to be looking at next week. But when they were threatened, when they faced big challenges, they prayed big prayers. Verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. I don't know what's different in heaven between one of us asking alone and all of us asking together, but somehow it seems to make a difference. It's just one of those theological things I can't fully explain to you, but I do believe. Again, does God answer our prayer when we pray alone? Yes. Does God hear our prayer when we pray alone? Yes. Does God want us to go into our prayer closet, Matthew 6, and pray alone? Yes. But there's something special in the heart of God when His people come together in agreement and pray together. I don't fully understand it, but there's something about that. Maybe the best way I can explain it to you is with my kids. They're all grown now, but years ago when they were small and after church on Sunday, sometimes it'd be like, if one said, Daddy, can we go out and eat? No, we're going home. If two of them said, Daddy, can we we go McDonald's? Can we go out and eat? I I probably would hesitate a little bit because two of them are asking, but we're probably still going to turn the steering wheel right and go home. If three of them, if all three of them said, Daddy, can we go out today to eat? Can we go out and eat today, Daddy? Daddy, can we go out and eat? If all three of them uh, agree and asking that, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn to their mother and say, do you do, what do you want to do? <laughs> and if she's in agree, you know what, that's right, right? Listen, I've been married 35 years. I know how it works. And if she's in agreement, if she says, yes, we need to go out and eat, and the kids say, yes, we need to go out and eat, guess what? We're going to McDonald's. Again, I I don't understand it all, but it just seems like God likes it when His kids come together in agreement in prayer. And so let me tell you what we're going to be doing, trying to practice this, and then we're going to close. Um... I've thought this week, said, Lord, how can, we, how can we be a praying church? And how can we be a church that practices what we read in the book of Acts? And there's three things that I want to tell you about. Number one, I want to invite you on Saturday nights for the next three Saturday nights. And why the next three Saturday nights? Because basically through the rest of this series on church, uh, this series is going to go through the first Sunday in December. So for the rest of this series, I'm going to ask you to join me right here on Saturday nights for a prayer meeting. We're not going to have anything big. I'm as far as like a program or singing. Or, we're just going to gather here and pray. Eight o'clock. Why eight o'clock? Give you time to go out and eat if you want to and still come. Give you time to watch Clemson play half a game and then still come. Give you, I'll just stop right there before I get in trouble. That'll be Saturday night, November 17, November 24, December 1. For those next three Saturday nights, 8 o'clock, we're just going to gather here at the altar. We're just going to pray. We're going to go row by row, praying over the, the pews, asking God to work in the lives of the people that will sit there. And so we're going to try to be a praying church. 
during this series and say, God, speak to us about prayer. Number two, we're hopefully going to be opening a prayer room soon. I've told you about that before. Uh, I had a couple volunteer after the first service said, we'll paint it for you. And so that was already an answer to prayer. So hopefully we can get that painted this week. And we're going to hopefully, before too long, open a prayer room. I'll give you more information about that. And then finally, let me remind you that we have an email prayer ministry where you can, you can email us and the entire church family, or at least those who have signed up for it, can join you in praying about that thing. Or you can sign up and be part of that prayer email prayer team. Just go to MountAreaBaptist.com. MountAreaBaptist.com. You can sign up to be part of the prayer team, or you can submit a prayer request. But, but I have a theory. See if you agree with this theory. My theory is this, the more we lean into the message and the mission that we've been given, the more desperate we will become in prayer. Does that make sense? You see, you don't have to pray a whole lot when you're not trying to do a whole lot. But God, just remember this, and I'll close. God did miracles at Pentecost. Yes, He did. 3,000 people joined the church. Yes, they did. And then later, 5,000 people joined the church. Yes, that's right. And then the Bible says also that God added to His church daily those who were being saved. That's right. But before any of that stuff happened, it was a prayer meeting. Before Pentecost, they joined constantly together in prayer. Jim Cimbala is Brooklyn Tabernacle pastor, known for a powerful prayer meeting. He said this, he says, If we call upon the Lord, He has promised in His Word to answer and to bring the unsaved to Himself, to pour out His Spirit among us. If we don't call upon the Lord, He said, He has promised us nothing. Nothing at all. No matter what I preach or what we claim to believe in our heads, the future will depend upon our times of prayer. This is the engine that will drive the church. That's really what you see in the book of Acts, isn't it? Overwhelmed by the mission they had been given, overwhelmed by the message that was theirs to share, the thing that seemed to drive them is prayer. Because it's not just in Acts chapter 1, but throughout the book, chapter after chapter after chapter, the way that they functioned, the way that they conducted, the way that they did church, if you will, they continue to pray all along the way. Everybody look up here. Imagine a big red button right here. It's time to push reset. It's time to say, because of the message we've been given, because of the mission that is ours, because we are not adequate for what God is asking us to do, we need to be Praying church. Let's do that right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're grateful that you have indeed shown us again the value and the power coming before your throne of grace. Lord, would you do a work in this place that can't be explained by us? Would you do something among us that is greater than us? Would you help us, encourage us, 
call us to join constantly together in prayer so that we can do the work you've called us to do. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.